0: Let's take our Bibles now, if you would, please, and open them to the book of Revelation, chapter 2. And this evening, as we continue our study in the book of Revelation, we're in the second division of the book, and this is where John was told to write the things that are. If you remember, there's an outline for the book of Revelation in chapter 1, verse number 19, and there John was told to write the things uh, that he had seen, the things that he sees, and things that he will see, or things that will come to pass. And chapters 2 and 3, where we're studying right now, is where John writes the things that are, are, and these are things that are relative to the church age. So what he's writing about, or as he, as he records the words of Jesus here, he, he's writing about things that happened from the time that Jesus spoke these words all the way up to the present age and until Jesus comes again. And so John is recording some familiar things here. He's in familiar territory because he's writing to real churches, seven literal churches that were existent in his time. But John is also writing for us because what the Lord has to say in these chapters uh, have to do with things that are going on in the church today. And so there are praises and there are also uh, problems that are in churches, the same problems and praises that were due those churches in the book of Revelation, are also due for, P, for our churches today. So we have some churches that need to be praised today because they're standing for the Lord. They're, they've produced and are producing a very strong testimony. But then on the other hand, there are churches with problems and ones that you might even say need to be condemned. They need to repent because they've fallen by the wayside and they've actually gone into very serious doctrinal errors. Last week, we talked about the Ephesian church. And this was a church that was very strong on doctrine. It was a church that was an orthodox church, very strongly orthodox, and yet uh, they 're given a warning here because they 'd lost the true zeal for the Lord, the true zeal for for really winning people to Christ. So they have a warning from the Lord. He says, "Repent and return to me, return to your to what you 're supposed to be teaching and and the love that you should have for the Lord." And if you don't, then you'll lose your status as one of Lord's churches. This evening we come to the second of these churches, and this is the church at Smyrna. Ephesus is the church that lost its love, and Smyrna is the church under fire. So we're going to read about that tonight. Let's stand, if you would please, as we read God's word. When in Revelation chapter 2, and we'll begin reading at verse number 8. And unto the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, and remember once again, when he says angel there, he's talking about the pastor of the church. And unto the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, These things saith the first and the last which was dead and is alive. I know thy works and tribulations and poverty, but thou art rich. And I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer, Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that ye may be tried. And ye shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. He that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. Heavenly Fathers, we come to you tonight. We just ask that you would bless as we study your word. Open this up before us so we may understand it better. And Lord, we just pray that you might help us to be a church that's very much like the one at Smyrna, one that stands for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Hope you'll keep your Bibles open because we are going to go right through the Scriptures here and study them tonight so you'll know where I am. But we notice as we study these different churches and the message that, that the Lord has given them, There's a common structure to each one of these letters. There's something that's said about the one who's writing the letter. Then there are certain praises that are given to the church. And then that's followed up with problems that are in the church. Then the letter closes with an admonition that the churches need to hear the message that's given to them by the Spirit. There are only two churches among the seven that are recorded here that really have no serious problems. Those two churches are Smyrna and Philadelphia. And what we don't find in the, in the letter that's written to them, that there's any serious rebuke for anything that's going on in the church. So here, the church at Smyrna was a church that was under intense persecution. They're a church that's under fire. But this was persecution that actually purified this church, and this was a church that remained a consistent testimony for the Lord. In each of these letters, there's a description of Christ The beginning of the letter starts out with something about Christ. And in each of those introductions, there's something that's peculiarly suited as a message for each individual church. Now, this letter begins in verse number 8, And unto the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things saith the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. And so for a church that's under fire, these are encouraging words because you need to know the power of the one that you're risking everything for. And so here we find that the one who is able to go through death and the one who is able uh, to come out victoriously on the other side gives them a message that I know about you, I know what you're going through, and I can bring you through any trial that you face. Now I want to make that the first observation tonight. We want to talk about the power of Christ. That's revealed, first of all, in this letter. The salutation of the letter expresses the eternality of Jesus. You'll notice here, he says, I'm the first and the last. And that tells us that he's eternal God. It's remarkable that there are people who call themselves Christians and they really don't believe in the eternal existence of Jesus Christ. Here, Jesus says, I am the first and the last. And what that is, is an expression of his deity, and comes right out of the Old Testament in what was spoken about Jehovah God. In Isaiah chapter 44, verse number 6, it says, Thus saith the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first, and I am the last, and beside me there is no God. And you'll notice there that the word Lord, or you should know that that is the word for Jehovah, and so Jesus then is not a created being. He's not Michael the archangel, as, as some people would claim. There's no mistaking that right here, Jesus identifies himself in the book of Revelation as the very same one who's the Jehovah of the Old Testament. So he's one with the Father. He's one with the Holy Spirit. And that tells us that he is eternal God. Well, that makes the letter even that much more special because the pastor who receives this information knows that here is something that's been dictated by God himself. This is a message that comes from the Savior. It comes from the mighty creator of the universe. And so if you're a church that's under fire, what better news could there be that you have a God who knows about you, who stands with you? Who else do you need besides him? And that's exactly what the Apostle Paul said. He said, if God be for us, who can be against us? So Jesus Christ then being God, he's one who possesses all the eternal attributes of God. There are two that are particularly pointed out here in these scriptures. First of all, he is God omnipotent. He's the one who was dead and is now alive. And what that actually means is that he's the one who became dead. Of course, he's always been the living God But he came down to this earth, and and Jesus came to the earth as a man. And as a man, he subjected himself to death. That's a mystery that's really too hard for us to understand. I mean, how can we possibly explain how the living God could become a man? And then not just to become a man, that the living God would subject himself to the death of the cross. There are lots of people who have trouble with the resurrection, and they can't understand how could Jesus come out of the grave? I have more trouble trying to understand how that he could be God and actually became a man and how he could die. I have trouble understanding that, but do I believe it? Absolutely, I do believe it because God said it's true. It's never in the creature to try to explain or to try to dispute anything that the Creator says. I believe this because God says it. He's the eternal God and the one who cannot lie said this is true. So he's God-omnipotent because he came to die. And then he's also God-omnipotent because of his own power. Jesus came out of the grave. Hebrews says he has the power of an endless life. And then these verses also reveal that he's God-omniscient. And, of course, that means he knows all. No one but God knows all. And Jesus Christ, being God, knows everything. Now, here we have this little bitty church at Smyrna. Uh, they're a people that's really swallowed up in the vastness of the Roman Empire. No one would really take notice of them because they're really just a small group. I mean, they're they're just a blip on the radar screen, you might say. And and uh, they're, the, what they're doing there in Smyrna is kind of insignificant compared to all the, the might and the power and things that are going on in the Roman Empire. But God, the God of the universe still recognized who they were he saw them he knew what they were going through he says i see what's happening to you so he's a god who sees all and one thing we really need to understand that there aren't any insignificant significant people in god's spiritual kingdom God knows about us all. The Bible says he knows enough to know every hair that's on your head and knows the number of every hair. It tells us that of all the, all the sparrows that dot the skies, that, the, that God knows even when the smallest of them falls from the sky. And so he says here in verse number 9, I know thy works, I know what's going on in your life, I know when you have trouble, I see all of that and I care about it. And so that's wonderful news for the church at Smyrna. That's why it's, it's suited. It's a good introduction for them because they know that they've picked up a letter here especially dressed to them, and the one who writes that letter is God, and he says, I know you, and I know what's going on with you. And that's a help to us because we know that when we're distressed, when we're heavy-hearted about things, when it comes to a place we don't even know whether we're going to live or die. God knows all about that. God says, I'm the, I'm the one who was dead and is alive. I'm the one who holds power over life and death. And so that helps us to know that no matter what happens to us, even if we do die, the one who has the power of endless life, the one who knows the power of life and death, has the power to cause each one of us to live again. So that's the Christ that we serve. He's alive. He's the eternal God. And no matter what happens, nothing is ever out of his control. So God has a plan and purpose for every one of us. There's not one single thing that escapes the notice of God. So this is a salutation, again, that's very perfectly suited for a church that's under fire. So he comes with a, with a word of power to a persecuted church. So let's talk about that next. Number two is the persecution of the church. This is truly a church that's under fire. Now, what we're reading here and what Jesus is talking to or this church that he's talking to is a church that has persecution there in the very first century but one of the things we know is that persecution has been the lot for the church throughout the centuries and much of the history of the of the church of christ for two thousand years now much of that history has been written with persecution it's always the it seems to be the constant companion of god's people I mean, you open up the book of Acts, and there are only days after Pentecost. I mean, just days after, after thousands of people were saved, persecution began. Peter preached that great sermon on Pentecost. There were, there were 3,000 people that got saved. There was rejoicing among the people of God for all those souls that came to know Christ. But you only have to go two more chapters and you get into chapter 4 and there you find Jews that are upset because the disciples are preaching the resurrection of the dead. They're saying that Jesus came back to life. And that was a perplexing problem for both Jews and Greeks because whenever you started to talk about resurrection, people coming back to life, then, then eyebrows start to be raised. And it's not long after the eyebrows are raised that fists began to be raised and then weapons are raised, and now you find Christians in great persecution. So here, in the, uh, we see that the disciples were, were put into prison. They're, they're told there in the book of Acts in chapter 4 not to preach the word of God anymore. But they said, we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. And you know what an amazing thing about this oppression of those disciples? Persecution did not stop them. They went back. They reported what had happened. They were thrown in jail. They told the other disciples that they had been interrogated. Uh, they'd been told they, they were no longer to preach in the name of Christ. And so what did the other disciples do? Well, they began to pray. But what did they pray for? They didn't pray that we wouldn't have any more persecution. What they began to pray for is that in spite of the persecution, no matter what happened to them, they would continue steadfastly Keep on preaching what God told him to preach, to speak more boldly than ever before, no matter what came in the way. And so you find that out throughout the book of Acts. There, there are beatings, there are murders, but still the men of God preached. And that's what went on in the church. Everywhere the disciples went, the story was the same. There's persecution for it. And so we find out it's not only Jews that are persecuting. The Gentiles hate the message, and so they persecute as well. In the book of Hebrews, it tells us that our forefathers were stoned, sawn asunder, slain with the sword. And then history tells us throughout uh, the history of the Christian church that there were people burned at the stake. There were those that were thrown to lions, drowned, stretched out on racks until they were torn limb from limb. And still the people of God preached. So Jesus says, I know what's going on. I know about this church in Smyrna. I know exactly what you're going through. Now they, as far as the world was concerned, was in poverty. But we notice here that Jesus says, you're rich. You, you may look like you're in poverty. You may not have the world's goods, but you're rich. And that's because you're laying up treasure in heaven. So they're going through the fire here. And, and this church, just, just like the Hebrew children, they could take the fire seven times hotter because the Son of God was going with it through it through the, with them. Now, let's notice a couple things about their persecution. First of all is the testing of tribulation. Why are these people going through this? Why, why can't the road be easy? When you become a Christian, why does this get hard? I mean, why, why can't life just be simple? Why can't it be cut and dry and everything work out the way that we want? But it's not that way. And so Jesus says in verse number 10... Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that ye may be tried, and ye shall have tribulation ten days. But be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. Isn't that a huge contrast to what you hear preached today? I mean today we have that health, wealth and prosperity gospel that I was talking about this morning. You can turn on your television and you can see there are thirty five thousand people in an arena in Houston, Texas, listening to a religious fool and a liar who's telling people that you don't have to be poor. God doesn't want you to be poor. God doesn't want you to be in sickness. God wants you to be rich. God wants you to, to live your best life now. God doesn't want any hardship for Christians then you flip over the channel to a to another station and there you can find a guy by the name of Preflo Dollar. He's wearing a 3 or 4000 dollar suit. He's got diamond rings on both hands and he tells you that what you what you can do is that you can reap the benefits of a material world. And so if you're poor there has to be something wrong with you. If you've got problems in your life, there must be something wrong with you. You're not living by faith. God's not pleased with you. There's something wrong in your life because you don't drive a BMW. Somebody needs to tell the poor people in Smyrna about that because when they got preached the gospel, when somebody came to them with the message of Christ, they didn't tell them all that. They didn't give them that part. Somebody left something out of the gospel that was preached to them. So here are people who think they're standing by faith, but they must not have any faith at all because whatever they're doing brings them poverty, it brings them pain, it brings them persecution, it brings them the penalty of the world. Somebody please tell them that they must not be doing something right. And so nobody tells them that you can follow Christ without sacrifice. Nobody tells them that you can actually have Christianity without pain. And that's what you have today. You have... Christianity, or so-called, that wants to pander to the American people and and tell them that you don't really have to surrender anything. At the same time, trying to preach a Christ that demands that you give everything. That's not the Christianity of the Bible. The Christianity of the crowd is not Christ Christianity. So Jesus said, don't wonder about this. Don't be surprised when troubles come into your life. You can expect that it will happen. He said, they did it to me, they're going to do it to you. And right after these verses where he says, I know about your troubles, I know about that persecution, right after those verses, he says, it's not going to end. He doesn't promise them that it will end. Instead, he says, more of it's coming. Some of you are going to be thrown into prison. Some of you are going to lose your lives. And so he says, be faithful unto death. So testing's going to come. If you're a Christian, you can expect it. But persecution and testing never destroyed a true Christian. I mean, how is it when we look at the history of of the church that persecution has never stopped Christianity? Christians have not given up their faith. Christianity is written in the blood of the martyrs. Many went to horrible deaths at the hands who said, you're heretics. But still it lives on today. Many of our Baptist forefathers were put to death, but we still have Baptists today. And why is it? Because the scripture also says that God is able to deliver the godly out of temptation. God knows how to preserve his people. And so you kill one of them, ten more are going to rise in his place because that's what God has promised. Why did they do it? Because this faith is real. It's because dying for Christ and, and persecution for Christ is honor. It doesn't mean you don't have any faith. It means you have great faith that you can go through that. Listen to these words from Acts. And when they had called the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple, in every house, they ceased not to teach and preach Jesus Christ. Folks, I'm telling you that if they laid five minutes of beating on those people, that uh, 35,000 people in Joel Osteen's arena, they'd be scattering like cockroaches when the lights come on. I'm telling you, I mean, I mean, they'd be crying to their congressmen. They'd be writing letters to the president. They'd write letters to Supreme Court justices. There's not a one of them would say, thank you for this, thank you for the persecution, because we've been counted worthy to suffer shame for the name of Christ. You know, they're not going to do that. And why they won't do it? It's because they're not there for the name of Christ. They're there for the deal. They're there for the thing that's going to make them rich. And so uh, they don't want the thing that brings reproach and poverty. And so when, when Joel preaches, they all clap their hands and they get real happy about it. Because that's, that's because they're a church of fun. They're not, they're not a church under fire, they're a church of fun. They're not the church of Smyrna, they're the church of Smurfs. They're like a little leprechaun saying, let's all go out and find our pot of gold. But not this church. This is a church that's told to expect what they got. And he said, some of you are going to die for the cause of Christ. Did you know Smyrna was a place of cultic worship? I mean, here was a place that had all sorts of gods, and, and one of the things they did was they had emperor worship. In fact, the city was, was favored by the Roman emperors because they, they set up and, and they subscribed to emperor worship. I mean, they bowed down to the emperor as if he were a god, and they actually believed and built temples to Caesar. They believed he was a god. And it was demanded of Christians in Smyrna that they would say, Caesar is lord. So that meant that they're supposed to add Caesar to the list of gods that everybody, that everybody worshipped. And then if they would do that, they could go on worshipping Jesus. No, nobody would really care about that because then Jesus would be added just to all the other gods that they worship. So if a Christian would simply admit the deity of Caesar, persecution ends. Nobody's going to harm you. You just say Caesar is Lord. You'll live in peace. You'll get jobs. There'll be no poverty at all. You just say Caesar is Lord. But they wouldn't do that. They would not say that. Polycarp, who was the last living disciple of the Apostle John, he was the pastor of the church in Smyrna. He was taken and they told him that if you'll just say that Caesar is Lord, then we'll let you go. You can do anything you want to do. You can worship Jesus if you want to, but you just have to say that Caesar is Lord. Swear by him. But Polycarp refused to do it. And so what they did, they took him to the pyre. They tied him to a stake, and then they burned him alive. And while they were burning him, he refused to renounce his faith. No more poverty, they said. Just admit that Caesar is Lord. Bow down to him. No more persecution. And what do we have today? We have Christians today that have no problem at all bowing to Caesar. There's all the little gods that we've got to take care of in our lives. All these other things that we have to do, we have to attend to all these other things. Maybe there's some of us that really need to recognize we need to rebel and we need to cast away some of our other gods. So these people are going through testing of tribulation. Now we notice in verse number 9 that Jesus talks to them and and he talks about the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. You know, that's really a sad statement right there. It's really sad because the Jews were no different than pagans when it came to persecuting Christians. Of course, we know that's true because we, we can read about what happened to Jesus. And they crucified him. They treated the church in the same way. But this is written, I think, because this is a very stark reminder of the heinous nature of their sin. I mean, the Old Testament Jews, I mean, they were, they were often chastised by God because they joined in the worship of false gods. I've told you on several occasions that when, when Gary and I were in Israel, that when we visit all these different archaeological archaeological sites, that the, that the pagan worship that was involved there, that really struck home to me at that time. And especially uh, when we went into the city of Dan in northern Israel, and there was that phallic symbol that was sitting right next to the throne of Jer- Jeroboam II. Israel was chastised for worshiping pagan gods. And I say that the sin of the Jews is heinous because these are the ones that Jesus came to. They were a favored nation. They're the ones that are given the law of God. But when it came to persecuting Christians, the Jews joined right in with those pagans, and they were as persecuted just as severely as any pagan ever would. You know, somebody said that that politics makes strange bedfellows. Religion makes some strange partners, too, because people will, you know, they'll climb in bed with anybody who wants to hurt the cause of Christ. But in any case, though, we see that the Jews are judged most harshly because they could have known better. You know, when I think about Americans, I think that we ought not to complain when the economy goes bad because we should have known better. Some of the things we do, we should have known better. I don't think that we ought to complain when murder reigns in our streets because we should have known better. And I don't think that we ought to complain when prisons are overflowing and overcrowded because we should have known better. And I don't think you ought to complain when your children can get condoms and drugs in the school but they can't get a New Testament. We should have known better. We ought not to complain when there are millions of babies that are being murdered and yet we might very well elect a president this year who might as well have had the knife in his own hand. We ought not to complain see, the gospel is preached, but people just won't believe the gospel. We ought to know better. And I'll tell you that, that preachers in America are going to be judged for preaching prosperity instead of preaching punishment. Now, let me see one more thing here about persecution in Smyrna. Number two, or secondly in this, in this order here, is the time of tribulation. There in verse number 10, we read, And ye shall have tribulation ten days. So what does he mean there, you'll have tribulation 10 days? I don't think anybody really knows for sure exactly what that means. There are some people who try to ascribe that to a particular time period. And they'll say, well, the 10 days is symbolic of 10 different errors of persecution. Some will say, well, it corresponds to uh, 10 different emperors who are especially known for persecution. And that's what he's talking about when he uses the number 10. Nobody really knows, but I'll give you an opinion. I believe that what he's talking here, when he uses the number 10, he's actually talking about a fixed period of time. The persecution is only going to last for a fixed period, and God is in control of that. God has set a limit on it. And he says, it's going to end. It's going to end. I've got my limits on that. And that's because God is the sovereign. God is the one who controls it all. So even Satan has his limits. He allows Satan to do a lot of things, but Satan has his limits. When when uh, Satan came and, and caused all of those problems in the life of Job, God said, here's how much you can do, and you can't do anymore. And then God said, you have to stop. Well, that raises a question for all of us, and that is, why does God allow it? I mean, why is this suffering? And why, why does God say that, that I'm going to let you go through that? Let me give you some reasons for it, and let me just remind you before we look at the reasons, that the eternal God subjected himself to suffering. And if you can explain to me why God allowed himself to suffer, then you're way ahead of me on this. Why does God allow Christians to suffer? Let me give you four reasons very quickly. And uh, this is not the subject of the message tonight, so we're going to go through them real fast. Number one, God allows it because of discipline. Number two, God allows it because of humility. Number three, because of education, And number four, because of testimony. So suffering can be because of discipline, and that's the way it was in the church at Corinth. They they needed to be disciplined, so God allowed suffering to come upon them. Suffering can be because of humility. And uh, this is what God did with the Apostle Paul. Paul said, And lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelation, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan, to buffet me. And so even the great Apostle Paul had to be humbled, and so God gave him suffering for that. Suffering may be for our education, and that's because there's virtues that we can learn through suffering that we can't learn in any other way. Our suffering may cause us to depend upon Christ more, so he does it for our education. And then finally, suffering can be for our testimony of Christ. And that is, other people can be brought to Christ when they see that a Christian is able to go through so many things that our faith is real, that we can stand for Christ in spite of the suffering that we go through. And so God may send it for those reasons. And what we never do is we never question God why he does it. God always has a reason. He's the sovereign God. He's in control of it all. And whatever God brings into our lives is always righteous and just. And so what the people in Smyrna really needed to know, they needed to know God's not going to forsake you. And we need to know it. God's always in control. And when he allows something to come into your life, he's always got a bigger and better thing for you. Now that brings me to the last observation tonight. And and number three is the promotion of Christians. In the end of verse number 10, he says, Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. Death doesn't end it for a Christian. And really, death doesn't end it for anybody. But for a Christian, there's something better that comes after this life. What do we get? Well, first we get the expectation of our prize. A couple of Wednesday nights ago, I I mentioned this, that that there are some people who teach that it's wrong to serve Christ for rewards. But the scriptures actually teach that, that rewards are very clearly an incentive for serving Christ. God wants us to have those rewards, and there's nothing wrong with expecting the reward because that's exactly what he promises. I also said that God... Or, or no Christian, rather, is going that, that loves Christ. Nobody who loves Him is going to serve Him just for the reward, and nobody who doesn't love Him will serve Him only for reward. We serve Christ because we love Him. Reward is an expectation for us, and it was an expectation of all of our forefathers. In Hebrews it says, These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, and were persuaded of them, and embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on this earth. But now they desire a better country, that is in heavenly. Wherefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath prepared for them a city. So there's a prize coming. And and there's nothing wrong with us expecting that prize. In the scriptures that we read tonight here in Revelation, it talks there about a crown of life. And I believe when it says that there, that it's actually talking about eternal life itself. I mean, that's a prize that we're going to receive. But I also know that along with eternal life, there comes certain rewards for serving Christ faithfully. When we get to Revelation chapter 4, there it talks about crowns. And it says that we're going to cast our crowns at the feet of Jesus. We're going to talk about that later, but I'll tell you just a little bit early that I don't think it's talking there about crowns of rewards. I think it's talking about the crown that every Christian receives, and that's because of what Christ has done and not because of what we've done. We've, we receive a crown of righteousness, and so that's the crown that we're going to cast at the feet of Jesus. So there's going to be other crowns, and Christ is not going to take away our reward. He, he gives us the rewards as an eternal benefit. We'll be able to use that throughout eternity. So, he's not going to take away the reward. There's going to be that crown of life, and we need to expect it, and the crown of rewards. Then, then secondly, here is the confirmation of our position. He says, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. He that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. He that overcometh is not an expression of doubt, as if there are some Christians who won't overcome. All Christians, all who believe in Christ, are overcomers. You remember we read that scripture last week from 1 John chapter 5. Who is he that overcometh the world? But he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God. And so if you are a believer, you will overcome. That's a promise. Your position is absolutely secured. But it also says here that the one who's promised and the one who is an overcomer will not be hurt of the second death. And what the second death refers to is actually death in the fires of hell. So we have a precious promise here for believers. But if that's a precious promise for believers, it's also a very powerful precaution for unbelievers. And so if Christ is coming back, which the book of Revelation affirms, Christ will come back. He comes back not with hurt for those who are believers. They're not going to be hurt of the second death. But if he's coming back, it also means that the second death is coming. And that's coming for unbelievers. And what it is, is eternal punishment in the lake of fire forever and ever. But I also want to say, uh, say something here to, to those who say that they are believers, but they're not really believers. Back there in verse number 9, when, when uh, uh, Jesus is talking about those who said they were Jews, but they're really not Jews, I think what he's talking about is people who were Jews by birth, but they weren't Jews by faith. It's the same as, as, as him saying, you're not the spiritual seed of Abraham by faith. And so there were some who said they were Jews, but they're not actually Jews. They're not the spiritual Israel. And there's a lot of people who claim to be Christians, but they're not really Christians. The proof is in the work that we do. The proof is in the words that we say. The proof is in the doctrines that we preach. Now, our, our works won't save us. They, they never would save a even a single one of us, but work. what works do is they prove that we're actually followers of Christ. The works will be there for people who are actually followers of Christ. And so there are many people who follow a false Christ, and there are people who believe that the gospel of Osteen is the same thing as the gospel of Christ, but it's not. Unless the preacher holds up Jesus Christ, and unless he says that there is a real hell coming for unbelievers, then he's preaching a false gospel. The scripture tells every one of us, as God's people, to examine ourselves to see if we're in the faith. In 2 Corinthians 13, verse number 5, it says, Examine yourselves whether you be in the faith, prove your own selves. Know ye not your own selves how that Jesus Christ is in you, except ye be reprobates. And so that's a question for every person here tonight. Are you really in the faith of Christ? Are you really a believer? Now here we have the church at Smyrna that's a church under fire. They're a church under persecution. But still, throughout all of that, they remained faithful to the Lord. They stood strong in their faith. And I say that that is a message for us today. It's a message for Berean Baptist Church. Though troubles may come, though trials may come, encompass us, we still must stand strong for the Lord Jesus Christ. In trying times, even in a persecuted, uh, a time of persecution, we need to stand for the Lord. Now, and I realize that most of you tonight, you're probably not going through actual persecution. But there may be financial problems, there may be family problems, there are things going on in your life that you seem to have and don't have any control of, and so your faith becomes weak through those times, that's the very moment that you must depend on Christ. That's when you have to stand for him. And so may we be a church just like like the one at Smyrna? Though we're under fire, we still stand for Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to you tonight again, we just thank you for the example of this church in Smyrna Lord, I do pray that each of us will stand strong on the faith that's once delivered to us. Lord, help us to be the kind of Christians we ought to be. May we examine ourselves and see if we are truly in the faith. And I ask you, Lord, that you'd speak to our hearts tonight and help us to be stronger people, stronger witnesses, and help us to be the kind of community of Christians we need to be in this terrible place in which we live. that's so against the gospel of Christ. Help us as we stand for you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's please stand as we sing.